Tag, hier ist 2.2, diesmal die 14. Folge mit einem Thema, das sowohl Sebastian und mich schon eine Weile beschäftigt hat und das man dann in einem Jubiläumsjahr natürlich auch gerne nochmal aufnimmt, denn man erkennt plötzlich, man weiß gar nicht so viel und man erkennt auch, dass man das viele Wissen, das man schon angesammelt hat, auch gerne nochmal neu sortieren möchte. Also 100 Jahre Bauhaus und was es uns heute das Jubiläum und die Geschichte dieses Bauhauses, was es uns heute noch zu sagen hat. Und hier ist Sebastian mit seiner ganz persönlichen Einstimmung zum Thema und mit seinem Weg hin zu diesem Thema. Hallo. Ja, mir geht es vielleicht so, wie es vielen Leuten mit dem Bauhaus geht, dass man sein ganzes Leben lang mit Design und Architektur gelebt hat, das vom Bauhaus bestimmt und beeinflusst worden ist, aber sich das gar nicht so bewusst gemacht hat, bis man sich dann später im Leben mit dem Bauhaus beschäftigt hat und damit, wie es eigentlich unsere gebaute und gestaltete Umwelt im 20. Jahrhundert grundsätzlich bestimmt hat. Also ich bin in einer Siedlung in der Nähe von Frankfurt aufgewachsen, die ganz stark von dem Frankfurter Baudezernenten Ernst May beeinflusst worden ist. Und der Siedlungsbau in Frankfurt von Ernst May, der war damals sehr fortschrittlich. Das war eine visionäre Art des Städtebaus, die also ganz stark von den Bauhausideen geprägt waren und die dann auch das Frankfurt nach dem Krieg bestimmt hat, weil diese Ideen wieder aufgegriffen worden sind. Also wie schon gesagt, ich bin in dieser Umwelt aufgewachsen und auch in Frankfurt aufgewachsen, das ganz stark davon geprägt ist. Und eigentlich hat erst so eine nachträgliche Beschäftigung mit dem Bauhaus mir das so ins Bewusstsein gebracht, wie stark und was da alles eben auf diese visionäre Epoche zwischen 1919 und 1933 Dessau und Berlin zurückgeht. Aber du hast mir gerade noch gesagt, du hast sogar in einer Wohnung dann gelebt, in der Bauhaus zumindest so ein Thema oder so eine Stimmung war. Mein Vater hat bei einer Wohnungsbaugesellschaft gearbeitet, die, die eben den Siedlungsbau in Frankfurt nach dem Krieg getrieben hat und wieder aufgegriffen hat. Und der war sich dieser Verbindung sehr bewusst. Das hat sich unter anderem darin geäußert, dass wir eine riesige Regalwand im Wohnzimmer von Dieter Rams hatten. Und Dieter Rams ist ja ein, ein, ein Designer, der von der Hochschule für Gestaltung in Ulm kam, die also ganz direkt auf das Bauhaus zurückging das dann eben ganz direkt auch das Design unserer Tage beeinflusst. Also wie Dara uns nachher erzählen wird, also unser Gesprächspartner Dara Kiese, ist das Design von, von Apple und von dem Chefdesigner Johnny Ives von Apple ganz direkt von Dieter Rams beeinflusst worden. Also da sind also einige Verbindungslinien. Da geht es dann um die Ästhetik. Ich persönlich bin... Äh eigentlich ja, ein Theoretiker, wenn es um das Thema geht, wie an Sebastian, wie wir gerade gehört haben, der Praktiker ist. Ich komme an das Bauhaus in Berlin in den 70er Jahren, im Bauhausarchiv in Westberlin, um genau zu sein, wurde zum ersten Mal sehr groß das alles nochmal zusammengebracht und dargestellt, also eine sehr frühe Wiederaufarbeitung des Stoffes. Und ich war dann in diesem Jahr in der Ausstellung, die die Harvard Art Museums in Cambridge, einem Vorort von Boston, auf die Beine gestellt haben. Walter Gropius und andere sind bei ihrer Emigration in die USA unter anderem in Cambridge gelandet und wurden dort auch relativ willkommen geheißen und dort wurde schon früh angefangen zu sammeln und so ist also sind die Harvard Art Museums heute eines der besten Archive überhaupt auf der Welt, um Bauhausmaterial zu inspizieren. Darauf gehen wir auch noch ein, aber wir sollten jetzt vielleicht mal kurz sagen, warum und wieso und weshalb wir Dara Kiese gewinnen konnten. 
Ja, ähm, Dara Kiese ähm, ist eine ausgewiesene Bauhauskennerin, eine ausgewiesene Bauhaus-Expertin, die als Professorin für Designgeschichte am New Yorker Pratt Institute unterrichtet und die äh, sich über Jahrzehnte mit dem zweiten Direktor des Bauhauses, speziell Hannes Mayer, beschäftigt hat, auch über ihre Dissertation darüber geschrieben hat und die unter anderem auch an äh, der großen Bauhaus-Erstellung des Museum of Modern Art im Jahr 2009 2010 mitgearbeitet hat. Also eine sehr interessante Gesprächspartnerin zum Thema Bauhaus, weil sie auch in, in der Art und Weise, wie sie das Bauhaus reflektiert und Design und Architektur historisch darüber nachdenkt und zum Teil auch dem widerspricht, was man in den letzten Wochen und Monaten über das Bauhaus lesen und hören konnte. Also sie ist, glaube ich, sehr, sehr gut daran, unsere Vorstellung davon zu erweitern, was das Bauhaus war und was es für einen ähm, Einfluss auf die, nicht nur auf die äh, Architektur- und Designgeschichte, sondern auf die Sozialgeschichte des 20. Jahrhunderts auch hatte. Wir haben ja ein Thema, das wirklich von ganz vielen verschiedenen äh, Eckpunkten bestimmt wird, also geografisch äh, Deutschland und dort auch in verschiedenen Facetten. Dann äh, die USA wurden sehr wichtig als äh, äh, Anknüpfungspunkt auch für die weitere Entwicklung der Bauhaus-Ideen und wie man das Bauhaus und seine Arbeit heute rezipiert. Und hier haben wir eine Amerikanerin mit einem deutschen familiären Hintergrund, die aufgrund ihres eigenen Interesses in das Thema reinkommt und aber auch äh, seht, wie oder wie auch nicht die Amerikaner mit diesem Thema umgehen. Denn eins muss man sich natürlich klar machen, die amerikanische Bauhaus-Sichtweise hat die weltweite Sichtweise von dem, was das Bauhaus war und heute ist, sehr stark geprägt. Das ist also eigentlich sehr ungewöhnlich, dass da so eine Art von kulturimperialistischer Überbau entstanden ist. Die Amerikaner haben uns quasi erklärt, was das Bauhaus war, obwohl das eine deutsche Geschichte war. Aber daran nimmt das also sehr gut äh, auseinander und deshalb finde ich dieses Gespräch auch sehr lohnend. Hört auch einfach rein und äh, kommt mit auf die Reise nach Weimar, nach Dessau, nach Berlin, nach Cambridge und in den Kopf von Dara Kiese, der Professorin am Pratt-Institut in New York. Wir reden heute auf Englisch, obwohl da Deutsch spricht, aber wir konnten sie nicht überzeugen, das mal auszuprobieren. Dann fangen wir einfach mal an. So, Dara, please go ahead. How did you get into all of this? I was studying my for my PhD in art history as a modernist, basically 20th century European painting and sculpture. And I came upon a Bauhaus subject that no one had worked on before. She was a, a young design student at the Bauhaus who, who designed children's toys and furniture. And that was my first kind of seminar paper and introduction to the Bauhaus. And after I wrote that paper and learned something about this school that was so far, far away in Germany... In the, from 1919 to 1933. Um, uh, and I went home to my parents' house for the Christmas holiday and realized that I grew up in a Bauhaus house, uh, a kind of a white cube, and hadn't really known that connection before. Where are we in, on the map when it comes to this particular building? Uh, that is just outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota, on the banks of the Mississippi River. 
And were you able to study the history of this particular building and how you came to be you know, a person who grows up in a Bauhaus building? Well, part of me thinks it's kind of predestined, despite my efforts to get away from my family. My dad is German and was interested in design and, and architecture. And both of my parents actually um, are interested in art, but also in design. And with the utopian ideals of the Bauhaus that design is art for everyone. So I grew up indoctrinated in that culture. Do you know who commissioned the building and who made it possible? My parents. They built it. They designed it with an architect, yeah. But inspired by blueprints or by images or what was the way that they found themselves uh, working on this? Yeah, apparently inspired by various modernist architects. So it's just a white cube with lots of light, open space, um, flexible you know, interior, etc. Maybe at this point, because we touched upon it earlier, you can tell us a little bit about your family because um, that might explain your last name a little better and also how you come by your affinity for German culture and German modernist culture in particular. My father's family were ethnically German in Riga and were resettled into a displaced person camp after the war. He went to a gymnasium, but he was quite a troublemaker um, in, in a small industrial city in northern Germany, Neumünster. And he was kicked out of the gymnasium for various acts of mischief and he met some Mormon missionaries who suggested that he should go to Utah to the university and he did go to Brigham Young University and then went on to Berkeley where he started his PhD and then began teaching in Minnesota German literature uh, so you would think that I would be fluent in German but We didn't speak German at home. <laughs> was there an affinity in your family or was it actually more like a reaction, you know, having moved to the United States, basically closing a chapter of um, affinity to Germany, apart from the fact that he was teaching? No, there was an affinity. And my mother had actually also lived in Germany uh, as a teenager. And so from both sides, I got this kind of, sense of family identity uh, as Germanic. I can read German quite well, and that led me in, the, in my profession to uh, study German art. So we talked earlier how you initially got interested academically in the Bauhaus, but then your field of research within the area of the Bauhaus focused on one particular person on whom you also wrote your dissertation who tells us something about the Bauhaus that maybe not everybody knows. So maybe you can talk a little bit about this person and your interest in him. When I started my Bauhaus research, uh, I discovered that uh, the majority of research was about uh, the initial 
founding of the school and the first director, Walter Gropius. And the second director, who Gropius hired to replace him, his name is uh, Hannes Meyer. He was a Swiss architect. The era that he was at the school received almost nothing uh, in the scholarship. It was maybe two or three pages out of each 200-page book. And each source said the same thing. Hannes Meyer politicized the school and was fired. And coupled with that politicization, each book argued that the accomplishments of the school had really fallen. The output was ugly, the students weren't learning anything, and they were being indoctrinated into Soviet-style communism. And what struck me about that uh, was I didn't find any evidence of that assertion. Um, And so I started to look into that understudied period of Bauhaus history uh, to discover something quite different. Um, And unfortunately, it's still being misrepresented. And that leads to a whole different story about the Bauhaus in America, actually, um, because uh, Walter Gropius went to the United States in 1937, 38, uh, where he uh, had a position at Harvard and basically where he wrote the history of the school with himself in the best light and his uh, accomplishments or the accomplishments of the school during his period as the most important accomplishments. And that has come down through the scholarship and also through the general understanding of the school. Um, But it it turns out to be quite a a distortion of uh, some, I think, equally important accomplishments uh, in terms of design practices and kind of architectural uh, education. May I use this as as a starting point for a question that, that is more pointed? When it comes to the reception of, of Bauhaus and its work, we have a number of different uh, periods and a number of different um, situations that lead us to a somewhat convoluted idea, even though we think we know what Bauhaus was. Number one, the fact that this geographically happened in a part of Germany that became communist after the war. Number two, that so many of these people emigrated to the United States where they kept on working. And number three, Bauhaus as an architecture school is just so limited to what what happened there. Um, and it takes maybe a hundred years to really <laughs> dig deeper and try to explain and try to understand this. So question, what are in your mind are the, the, the number of issues that you take issue with that need to be addressed when we talk about 100 years and looking back? To start, the Bauhaus was mainly not an architecture school. They couldn't afford uh, an architecture program until quite late. Uh, so it took eight even nine years to uh, establish a formal architecture training program. It also was not an art school. So when we talk to an American audience that's familiar with the school or the name, they immediately say it was art and architecture, but actually it was mainly a design school. What I find interesting or important about the school and its legacy is that um, they transformed 
not just kind of design education, but the way that we think about design in the 20th and 21st centuries. They transformed it from a 19th century ideal or model of early mass production to uh, what we know now to be design. They did that within their kind of 14 years. One way of describing the contributions of the Bauhaus in these terms of, of uh, transforming you know, an older system of making things to the one we know now is to talk about the rhetoric of the Bauhaus. So it started out basically uh, as a school that united fine arts and crafts, right, for, out of the arts and crafts movement, which was based in England in the late 19th century. The first kind of dictum of the school was arts and crafts, a new unity in service of building. So even though building wasn't really, you know, a practical outcome, the idea was there. You know, we're going to build a new world after the First World War out of its ashes, 1919, and we're going to use the new technological uh, advances and material advances to create something different. But the ideal that Gropius had for the school was old-fashioned by that point, right? It's breaking down the hierarchy between the you know, creative, artistic genius artist uh, with the skilled handicraftsman and trying to make beautiful things that could be reproduced and manufactured. But it's still kind of an older model. That's not how designers work now. Um, and so by the end of the school, the model was creating prototypes for mass production um, that were based on user need or consumer need. That was a new idea, basically, at that point, right? That was not something that people practiced before. Right. It wasn't the only place that this that this shift was happening. Um, it's just one of the, you know, I mean, it's, it's just a place with a lot of creative, interesting people uh, that were also kind of working out ways of teaching and thinking about how to create a new, new modern world um, and a new built environment with the new technological possibilities and responding to the needs of a destroyed uh, Europe. Within that, you know, finding design for masses of people um, is a utopian ideal of, you know, beautifying the world. What I'm curious about, and you're an American Bauhaus scholar, is um, how in the, uh, in the official histories that are being told about the Bauhaus now or in the popular histories that are told about the Bauhaus now, this, this utopian aspect um, that you're just talking about now seems to have gotten lost. How did that happen? Was it sort of lost in translation? Does that have something to do with the shift of the center of gravity of the Bauhaus from Europe to the United States? Where did that utopian impulse kind of fall under the rug? Well, a couple of things. Market forces, um, but the second thing is the 
perceived need in post-World War II American and probably European art criticism to depoliticize and decontextualize uh, modernist forms. You know, it's a legacy of that depoliticization um, that separates modern forms like simple geometries, clean lines, uh, primary colors, etc. Things that we kind of associate as uh, like a Bauhaus product, even though it's more complex than that. That kind of simple way of talking about it was the way that um, an American critical discussion separated it from its utopian um, values. That happens not just at the Bauhaus, but also in terms of, say, abstract expressionist painting, right? Or um, the international style of uh, architecture. And so that brings me to the second part. So partly it's disciplinary, and then partly it's also market forces. So that touches on probably the biggest influence on the American uh, reception of the Bauhaus, um, where... Not only did some of the most famous members of the Bauhaus come to the United States, where they taught at uh, Gropius and Marcel Breuer, for example, taught at Harvard. Mies van der Rohe taught at uh, Chicago. And uh, Josef Albers helped to establish or refine the design program at Yale. Um, you know, these kind of central figures... Uh, if we think about their biographies or the, the actual situation where they left Germany, they were not only, you know, seen as enemies of the United States during the Second World War, they were followed, followed by the FBI, for example, and they also had to separate themselves from the uh, perceived threat of socialism and communism. So the development of the Bauhaus idea in America goes hand in hand with uh, a new burgeoning global corporate culture in the United States, particularly after the Second World War, um, where huge companies could co-opt not just the Bauhaus, but international style for their own needs, right? The Bauhaus immigrants come to the United States as... Um well, basically naked people who just have ideas and who have just basically rescued themselves from a deadly situation. At the same time, we have a development in the United States. I would point to two names, uh, Raymond Levy, the designer, industrial designer, and Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect. Both are extreme narcissists and both play the game they point to their ideas and they point to their plans, but they also have this whole thing about, well, I'm the greatest in what I do. And so suddenly the marketplace of ideas changed um, where it's not about the ideas. It's more about the people who represent the ideas. And I think the Bauhaus had in America had to basically um, also survive some of that. But uh, maybe you don't see it that way. Maybe you can uh, correct me here. Well, that uh, they had to kind of establish themselves um, as, you know, outsiders. I'm not sure about this idea of big uh, kind of narcissistic personalities. For example, in Germany, they embraced uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. I mean, he was, along with cowboys, uh, engineering and skyscrapers, you know, he, he was seen as, uh, an, you know, an American genius. But um, uh, there was definitely xenophobia about uh, European 
uh, design. Um, and one example that I like to cite has to do actually with uh, type, typography. The Bauhaus and other modernist graphic designers and typographers embraced sans-serif type as opposed to the German traditional fraktur um, or, this, uh, or the traditional uh, serif typefaces. And for Germans, that was seen as um, international as opposed to the kind of nationalistic heritage of you know, medieval, you know, Gutenberg's printing press or something type. Um, uh, but then in the United States, they rejected sensor of type as a European so-called sophisticated uh, import that was threatening, uh, you know, American identity. And so I think you're right that there were all these big personalities and then there are all of these kind of nationalistic associations that were competing uh, also at the time. And Tom Wolf serves this up in 1981 with his book, From Bauhaus to Our House, where he's trying to lure people into thinking that Bauhaus took the wrong way in terms of uh, architecture, for instance, in the United States. So in the U.S., we still have to deal with that uh, part of the perception, no? Maybe this is a good time to mention the entree of the Bauhaus into the United States, which is actually through the Museum of Modern Art. They, uh, there was only one other small, small exhibition of Bauhaus work before 1938, which is quite late, right? I mean, that's already, the Bauhaus closed uh, for good in 1933. Um, and 1938, the first architecture curator Philip Johnson commissioned Walter Gropius and his colleagues like Herbert Bayer to uh, put put on the Bauhaus exhibition which at the time was not even in the Museum of Modern Art it was in a temporary space in the basement of Rockefeller Center so the Museum of Modern Art is the first American museum to actually have uh, an architecture department. And actually, the whole structure of MoMA is inspired by the Bauhaus. And the way that MoMA has uh, developed as an institution and has helped to define what modernism is, has had a huge impact on, on everything, how we understand modernism in general, but also the Bauhaus. Let's maybe take a step back. We're still uh, kind of talking about the footprint that the Bauhaus left in the United States. And maybe we can get back to what we were trying to talk about, by talking about how the, the, the footprint of the Bauhaus in America has shaped the perception of the Bauhaus in America, uh, which was different from the original intent of the Bauhaus. Yeah. And you could talk about that through the original MoMA exhibition, but also how that led to the employment that the Bauhaus protagonists received in the United States and the commission they received in the right. United States, right. where they actually physically left a much bigger mark than in Europe to begin with. That's what I wanted to get to. The founder of MoMA, Alfred Barr, traveled with Philip Johnson, the, this architect and first uh, curator of architecture and design at MoMA. Uh, they traveled to the Bauhaus in the late 20s. They were inspired by an institution that you know, combined all of the creative arts and design. They established the museum. It has an architecture and design department. It goes on, you know, it has prints and drawings, illustrated books, film, video, performance, etc. It's not just painting and sculpture. 
But then Philip Johnson wrote a book in 1932 called The International Style. And uh, that is where actually the depoliticization of all of early 20th century modernism, um, that was not necessarily where it began, but it had a huge impact on how we understand it. And the irony of that, to get back to your question about Tom Wolfe, um, is that because of that, then the Bauhaus in the post-war German period was seen as too American because it became synonymous with the international style, um, which was corporate America. And then that gets to another complicated history. Uh, West Germany was one perspective, uh, East Germany as another, but the, in East Germany, then they, they re rejected it as formalist, uh, you know, capitalist experimentation. And so even the leftist, uh, you know, actually it was a pretty leftist institution, but Hannes Meyer couldn't work in the Dede era because uh, he was seen as this formalist capitalist. Um, one reason I find that complexity of the 20th century so fascinating with uh, in terms of the Bauhaus is that the Bauhaus has become something that everybody can use or abuse. They can tailor uh, whatever their argument is and, and find examples to support it. Um, and that's part of the problem with the Bauhaus legacy is uh, it, you know, it can be on the one hand, you know, I mean, on the one hand, everything and the other hand, nothing because it's so varied uh, and it's so misunderstood. You were involved in, in another exhibit, a newer MoMA exhibit. And um, I can imagine how all these thoughts that you were just touching upon were kind of also leading into what this show became and how it tried to solve some of the puzzles that you were just offering us. The exhibition at MoMA was a collaboration in the Bauhaus spirit between the departments of painting and sculpture and architecture and design. Uh, and at least in its conception, began as a collaboration with the three German Bauhaus institutions the one in Dessau, the one in Weimar, and the one in Berlin. Even in terms of the uh, understanding and the legacy of the Bauhaus, within those four institutions, there was a lot of variability. The way that the curators um, at MoMA uh, decided to uh, kind of structure the show to make sense and also to I don't know, lessen some of the, to avoid some of the um, problems um, with these different histories was to uh, focus on the school itself between 1919 and 1933 rather than include um, its legacy, for example. I think the most successful or interesting part of that exhibition in terms of uh, the American understanding of the Bauhaus was to include um, and focus a lot on the uh, early Bauhaus, this kind of expressionist phase of the Bauhaus, which has kind of been not necessarily written out of the history, but definitely de-emphasized since the early uh, uh, 1938 exhibition at MoMA. The Bauhaus um, has these multiple phases, and the, the best known phase of the school is from about 1923 to 1928, when, when Gropius and the other kind of most famous um, 
you know, participants left the school. Marcel Breuer, um, Herbert Bayer, and uh, Laszlo Maholi Nagy. They all ended up in the United States. Um, but the phase that has been emphasized is um, this kind of it's it's uh, it avoids the problems um, of the early Bauhaus with its expressionism and mysticism and spirituality and um, uh, a kind of individuality amongst the artists. Um, and it was actually in its founding manifesto called the Cathedral of Socialism, so they could just avoid that altogether, too, in, in an American uh, context. What uh, it avoided was also this controversial Hannes Meyer period, uh, and then uh, the Mies van der Rohe period after uh, uh, Hannes Meyer was fired. You know, it really helped to solidify the the kind of quite limited notion of what the Bauhaus was based on what uh, Gropius and his uh, compatriots felt was uh, the most significant contribution. And so with the 29-2010 um, MoMA exhibition, what I think the, the biggest kind of surprise for a lot of people was the emphasis on the early period. Um, and a lot of paintings and sculptures and drawings from this kind of German expressionist phase of the school. The Museum of Modern Art is very in-depth in, in its very conception and structure to the Bauhaus, which I think in the, in the sort of general public is a little known fact. So I guess two things. First of all, could you elaborate a little bit more how the structure of the MoMA represents uh, Bauhaus ideas and also if maybe the 2010 exhibition that you worked on that was the first time that the MoMA looked at the Bauhaus again was also maybe an attempt of the MoMA to sort of redefine itself and to and to reconsider its own structure and conception. When these two principal figures at MoMA um, traveled to Europe to discover what was new and fresh and avant-garde in the late 1920s, um, they visited the Bauhaus and brought back that model of multiple kind of workshops, basically, areas of artistic production, um, and wanted to democratize uh, the museum by including those those elements of, you know, everyday life and, and design and architecture. And so that's always been part of MoMA's mission, right? But this actually leads us to another big discussion about the hierarchy of the arts, right? Since the industrial era, the hierarchy is painting, sculpture, then architecture, then design. MoMA has, in its mission, just like the Bauhaus, claimed to erase that hierarchy and have this more egalitarian view of, of visual culture and, and the built environment. Um, but it's almost impossible, right? We all know that a Van Gogh is worth $300 million and a, and a graphic, you know, book is, is not. The structure of MoMA has, is still um, based on department. So each department has its own collection and its own set of curators. Despite the fact that it had this kind of interdisciplinary, uh, interdepartmental collaboration as an ideal, just like the Bauhaus, it hasn't really 
accomplish that. Interestingly, now MoMA uh, is um, trying to get back to that original ideal. Um, right now, it's clo- the museum is closed. It's going to be reopened with an expanded gallery space and a, a new Jean Nouvel building, but with a couple of Bauhaus ideals in place. One is integrating the galleries and also the exhibitions um, to be more you know, interdisciplinary. And another is actually uh, to reconsider modernism and the trajectory of modernism as it's been written by institutions like MoMA. Whether or not they'll accomplish that is yet to be determined. Um, I think even within institutions, even if they espouse these ideals, um, painting and sculpture still tends to have the, um, the privileged position and design, for example, is treated as the kind of supplementary, uh, ugly stepsister who, you know, can add flavor like chairs or something to uh, a painting exhibition. And um, that's one of my pet peeves about MoMA in particular, but also about the attitude towards design. And I think that the understanding of Bauhaus history is uh you know, exemplifies that very same problem. Well, ironically, it seems like the architecture and design departments are being shrunk, and that's being justified by the fact that the exhibitions are going to be more multimedia and more interdisciplinary, so there's no need for large architecture and design departments anymore. But in a way, that's contradictory, right? Yeah, and it's also um, just as a general, like a larger general public is beginning to appreciate architecture and design more and more. Um, and, you know, it gets in, into these institutional problems and the kind of uh, same with academia. You know, how long does it take to redirect interest and in the canon? Um, it takes, you know, decades to make those changes. I'd just like to get back a little more to Hannes Meyer. We've touched upon him here and there, and he was the main focus um, of of your interest. But maybe you can talk a little bit more about what his contribution was that is under-recognized and that really should be rescued within the context of looking back at 100 years of Bauhaus. Hannes Meyer was a Swiss architect um, who, in his early career, like many kind of internationally recognized and internationally focused architects of the teens and 20s. He studied in England. Uh, He studied, uh, you know, the Garden City movement, um, which was influential even for building in Germany, especially, for example, Ernst May and the Frankfurt Siedlungen and and actually all of the um, housing developments in the post-World War I uh, German cities. He was hired by Gropius to continue uh, Gropius's vision, which he did, to kind of modernize architectural and design education. So he established the first architecture department at the Bauhaus. After one year, Gropius resigned and, and hired Meyer as his replacement. And he was the director of the school from 1928 to 1930, while the school was in the city of Dessau, which is this industrial city. Um, and I mentioned that he was fired for politicizing the school. 1928 to 1930 uh, was an increasingly politicized era. 
What is interesting about Meyer is he was a scapegoat at the Bauhaus. With local elections in Dessau, the Social Democratic mayor who supported the Bauhaus was threatened, uh, you know, and, and was actually voted out. It was often cited that the Bauhaus was this radical school. These kids were crazy and wild. Why were they spending all this money on this experiment when people, you know, didn't have homes and things like that? Um, and so they fired Meyer to try to kind of uh, squelch the problem of uh, uh, political conflict. But uh, w what's more important about that um, in terms of Bauhaus history is that his accomplishments and innovations at the school have been viewed through the lens of communism and specifically Soviet communism. Um, in part because uh, he, Hannes Meyer, like uh, many Western architects, uh, moved to Moscow uh, after he was fired because he couldn't get a job then in Germany. So he lived in Moscow from 1930 to 1936. That was the nail in the coffin for his reputation. Uh, and the problem with the scholarship and our, our, our understanding of his contributions at the school is that it hasn't really been studied. Um, it was just seen as uh, ugly and uh, you know prescribing uh, barracks-like you know, design for, uh, for all people in some kind of a Soviet top-down planning way. What I've found, and the scholars are reevaluating um, this period, is that the real problem with his approach to design um, was that he didn't treat it as art and technology like uh, Gropius. He took art out of the equation for design production, you know, with manifestos, he said, you know, uh, you know, design is not art, art has nothing to do with it. Um, and that was an affront to the, I, I, the traditional ideals of creativity, individuality, uh, personal expression, etc. Things that, by the way, we, that are enmeshed in American ideals of democracy and capitalism and the free market, etc. And so when he denounced art as the starting place for design, uh, he basically was rejecting this arts and crafts model um, of making practical things beautiful. Unfortunately, this kind of equation of art and technology then was misapplied to Meyer. They said, okay, if you're removing art, then all that's left is technology. And then you're just making this kind of machine art. Uh, it's impersonal. Um, it's a, it's a one-type fits-all, etc. What he actually was doing was he rejected the entire premise of the arts and crafts movement, um, and he focused instead on the user as the starting point for design and architecture. What he did is, this is his real contribution, instead of focusing on ease of production, so using new technological means of building, you know, building mass apartment buildings or producing furniture, for example, cheap furniture, with the ideal that inexpensive means of production could, could give more people opportunities to have good design. He focused instead on design research. So what do people need um, 
you know, how are they going to use it? And not just that, his approach is much more holistic um, in nature. He would, uh, his students would analyze the uh, landscape, the, you know, the ecology, the existing infrastructure, neighborhood relationships, community centers. Um, and so he took a much more um, urban planning approach to the architecture. And by doing that, it was seen as an affront to this kind of creative genius architect who would make beautiful homes and kind of plop them down anywhere um, as these kind of works of art. And so it really was a shift in how we understand uh, architecture and urbanism and design as these tools for relationships between people and communities, with the environment, with the future, for example, uh, with issues of sustainability. That's the part that has been lost. We're still in the year, the, uh, the 100th anniversary. Do you think this is being utilized as another important part of it, or is it basically underplayed this year? There is new Hannes Meyer research, um, mainly in Germany, not in the United States. And so, in a sense, there is much more nuance and complexity in understanding that. And basically, it's connecting the Bauhaus to post-war architecture and design schools. Well, 1960s uh, architecture and design schools. You know, Hannes Meyer was doing that already in the 1920s. Uh, what became normal and standard in, in many programs much, you know, decades later. Well, unfortunately, a lot of the same stereotypes are coming out uh, in symposia and exhibitions. But it has to do with this problem that art historians are looking at design and architecture uh, and decontextualizing them and aestheticizing them. That still is not what the Bauhaus was about. And it has to do with these disciplinary problems. I guess it's difficult to talk about an interdisciplinary institution from a specific vantage point, right? It's always limited. Um, and so the same kind of stereotypes persist. But in terms of new scholarship, you know, a lot of the the new scholarship corresponds to disciplinary changes. For example, uh, the recognition that modernism isn't just Europe and the United States, that uh, there's a global modernism. And in fact, that was one of the Bauhaus legacies. People didn't just come to the U.S., as many Americans think. You know, they went around the world. Uh, and those kind of different global you know, centers uh, in Latin America, for example, uh, in uh, India, uh, in Northern Africa, Israel or Palestine, those are now getting more attention. So basically the legacy of the students uh, who would go on and take kind of their Bauhaus training and teach subsequent generations. Um, and another area that um, of scholarship um, is about other underrepresented uh, figures at the school, notably women and their contribution. So one example is that women were funneled into the weaving workshop, which was seen, even though they had the, the Weimar Republic ideal of equality, 
about half of its students at the beginning anyway were women. The vast, vast majority uh, ended up in the weaving workshop. Um, but then there's this, this kind of uh, further irony to that. It was one of the most successful workshops in the school. You know, it was one of the most financially successful. So that is something that um, is being considered now. Just one more follow-up to, to Hannes Meyer and maybe also um, getting towards, towards wrapping up. You were talking about how he addresses inequality, how he addresses community building and, co and context, how he addresses, yeah, how he addresses sustainability. And those are all issues that in urban planning and architecture are as pertinent today as ever. So you think Hannes Meyer would have a lot to say to our situation in urban planning and in cities today. Yeah, and actually that gets to the crux of some of the problems of, um, of Bauhaus, the Bauhaus legacy in the United States, that um, there is this ongoing struggle that was happening even while Gropius was at Harvard between market forces and uh, building, you know, luxury houses back then versus socially oriented building for broader sections of society. Basically, market forces went out in the United States. Even Gropius at Harvard, uh, that was one of the um, important questions. That has, even students during the Second World War in the U.S., they were battling it out in, in their Uh, publication, their school publication at Harvard, between a more for formally oriented patronage model of uh, architecture versus uh, socially conscious architecture building for, for example, returning soldiers and the need to, yeah, the need to find housing for all of these people. Unfortunately, From my perspective, um, it's the market forces that went out. And so when you mentioned uh, earlier uh, the Seagram building, for example, um, you know, that ends up to be the Bauhaus legacy in the United States. It's um, at least the most visible one. It's corporate appropriation of modern skyscrapers that can take on any meaning Some of the meaning at the time, of course, was the idea of transparency and also a kind of global branding and multiple kind of corporate international conglomerates or whatever under the same glass and steel, honest and transparent roof. Probably the bigger legacy has to do with um, education and design and art and architecture education. That continues to have this ongoing discussion within American higher education between practical training and kind of artistic, more theoretical training. And then you get into these questions of um, being a skilled professional or uh, being a kind of an individual artistic experimenter of, with forms, etc. Um, and so it's ongoing. I went to the Harvard Art Museum's Bauhaus show, uh, which opened in February. And uh, what I came uh, with a few interviews with people and uh, a few answers that uh, the curator gave me. Ich heiße Lynette Roth, ich bin Daimler-Kuratorin des Busch-Reisinger Museums und leite auch die Abteilung für moderne und zeitgenössische Kunst an die Harvard Art Museums. 
Es war ja immer die Frage, warum ist die größte Bauhaussammlung außerhalb Europa ausgerechnet in Cambridge, Massachusetts? 32.000 Objekte, das geht aber weit über das deutsche Bauhaus hinaus, also über die Zeit von 1919 bis 1933. Also unsere Sammlung war auch dafür gegründet, auch die amerikanische Weiterführung oder Fortführung zu archivieren und, und festzuhalten. Irgendwann ist diese Initiative auch aufgegeben, weil es einfach so viel beinhaltet hätte, dass man sich damals entschieden hat, okay, wir, wir hören irgendwie mit der amerikanischen Weiterentwicklung auf und konzentrieren uns doch, wenn wir Neuerwerbungen machen oder Geschenke bekommen, konzentrieren wir uns doch auf, auf die Kernzeit und What I also learned for the first time, the fact that the United States seems to be a repository of a lot of items, important items that people can study, and that uh, at the Harvard Art Museum, they feel um, very strongly about protecting the heritage of what um, these people brought to the, to the United States, uh, including some of these uh, weirder things like this uh, modulator that uh, Mr. Laszlo uh, Moholy Nudge built and, and schlepped on the boat uh, across the ocean and which is still now functioning. In Wir haben das Original hier in unserer Ausstellung, die auch noch ähm, äh, funktionsfähig ist, obwohl nicht immer ohne äh, ein bisschen äh, Sorg, Sorgfalt. Es gab auch eine Replika, die 2007 gemacht worden ist für eine Ausstellung beim Tate Modern. Und das haben wir jetzt in der Sammlung. Und die Arbeit ist hauptsächlich auf Reisen. Das Original kann nicht reisen, es ist zu empfindlich. Und das war der Grund damals, dass man eine Replika hergestellt hat. What is your take on what this year, 2019, with the anniversary, and what has been put together in the United States. Has it helped Americans, for instance, understand the, the Bauhaus history better, or is it um, just another yeah, effort of highlighting, showcasing the same old uh, things? You know, I respect the Harvard Art Museums and their keeping of that Bauhaus collection. I think it's really important and definitely a treasure trove. My criticism is that uh, it still treats this school as um, a producer of art. And it did that. That's a fact. Uh, people created art. But that was a, almost a side um, uh, result of what their intentions were and what their goals were. What happens is it, it creates this distorted view, kind of fitting the Bauhaus into what we want to appreciate as a, as a culture, which is, you know, pretty pictures or something. Instead of actually understanding the context um, with, you know, fr from which they were made. And that gets to this basic problem in, in un for a general public to understand what design is. Design is not art, you know. Um, And though, and and treating it that way, you know, doesn't doesn't teach the public actually what the Bauhaus was about or what design 
is and, and can do for society. Um, and so to me, it's kind of the same old thing. And um, they had a symposium uh, in the spring, which you can, with very smart speakers, interesting topics, etc. cetera, uh, you can stream it on YouTube. Um, but again, it's focusing on the aesthetic kind of artistic output of a few people at the Bauhaus. And I, I'm not so sure that, yes, it has its own contribution, but I guess it leads to this continued distortion um, of, of what the school was actually about. For example, the utopian... Let me try to, uh, to help you get this even, even uh, <laughs> more dense. Um, I mean, people objectify objects, right? And they, they pick them. But it's it's completely uninteresting in my book to do this over and over again. It's almost like, well, you take the old Beatles record and you play it again and again and again in the supermarket and wherever, right? So you get lost in terms of, well, how did this all start? How did this all happen? How did it influence people? You just objectify something and uh, it's usable as consumption. Is this where you're uh, trying to hit the, the nail? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And... Without more historical context, it's heroicizing a few figures um, and not necessarily their important contributions to the school. Um, and, yeah, it perpetuates this very limited understanding. Um, and, and not just of the Bauhaus, but about the world we're living in and about the future of design and the potential of design and, um, you know, the impact of design. Every single thing is designed. And, and, and you know, the, the, a, a lot of, like, this is an opportunity right now to address some of the same questions that they were addressing at the school, which was, we have this new global culture. We have new technology, means of production, uh, means of distribution, and what are we going to do with it? Uh, and, you know, there, there was, um, I mean, we're, we're living that very same sort of uh, trajectory right now. And if we're talking about, like, pretty pictures, um, you know, that's, that's, has its own place, but that's not actually going to uh, uh, get people to think differently, not only about the school, but about the moment that we're living in. And I, th I think that the Bauhaus is still relevant um, in, in the ways that I just described. But in your role as a professor right now, uh, when you talk to students, um, can you address this and does it ring a bell with you know, people who are young this, you know, in this day and age, or are you basically your lonely prophet uh, out in the wilderness? Yeah, no, it, it does resonate because I teach designers. Um, and that raises another problem. Um, you know, I'm trained as an art historian. There are no, there's only, as far as I know, I'm pretty sure this is true, there is only one design history PhD program in the United States at the Bard Graduate Center. The United States is so far behind um, in terms of the evolution of the discipline of studying design and its history, uh, we're f way far behind Germany or actually, you know, e England and, and Great Britain. Um, and so you get, like like with me, I, I, I trained as an art historian. That's a whole separate discourse. I had to learn the design discourse, but it's not taught. I basically 
shifted my focus and my experience at MoMA and working with the design curators there, uh, Paolo Antonelli and Juliet Kinchin specifically, you know, they, they taught me to really uh, rethink what all of this is and means. Um, so when I talk to my design students, you know, they have learned some art history um, and not much design history. When I say, look, this is what Gropius was doing, art, uh, applied to, you know, industrial objects, um, whereas Meyer was actually training designers to think like designers. Uh, they get it because that's how they're that's how they're trained too. I keep emphasizing this kind of disciplinary thing because they're a small segment of the population. I mean, you're both German. Did uh, did. Did you grow up learning about design and the context of design? And I don't think that we learn that, even though it's everywhere, it's ubiquitous, it's, it's shaping our daily existence all the time. Uh, we still don't have a conversation about it. Uh, and I guess that that's one reason why I'm, I'm so fascinated by the Bauhaus, because it had this utopian impulse. Uh, it, get, it gets lost it's lost now while we're in this moment of tremendous uh, uh, technological and, and, and global change, um, you know. Uh, and so I see these parallels that and it has this kind of social possibility. So the Bauhaus properly understood in your sense would have a lot to speak to the third industrial revolution that we're living through right now. And you're fighting for that proper understanding. Yes, exactly. This is a question that we talk about with designers. We don't know what the technological changes will be, software changes, for example, in the next 20 years. We have no idea. So uh, this, this is a question of the Bauhaus. And if you don't know what the future brings and you don't even know what the potential is of the technology and, uh, and means of production that you have, uh, how do you teach people to do something new? course these early modernists they wanted to break with history they said let's get rid of the baggage of history and you know start afresh of course that's a myth that's impossible but um but even now so the one of the important contributions of the Bauhaus is to create a way of understanding various contexts whatever problem or place that they were designing for to analyze the specific circumstances of that place Uh, and then to respond to those needs of those people in that, you know, specific ecology and, and, and infrastructure, thinking um, in completely new ways. And it's a question for all of us. You know, we're all entrenched in our ways. Do you see in some of the things that we do use these days, a hundred years later, Uh, a, a legacy of the Bauhaus. Uh, and I'm not just talking about objects. Let's say the way Apple uh, used design to help the consumer use uh, the products and identify them as uh, in a certain stylistic way. I'm also thinking of the thought process behind things that we are now using. Very common items are, of course, you know, cars, smartphones, uh, some other electronic equipment. Absolutely. And actually, Apple um, has a Bauhaus legacy because uh, the Ohm Hochschule für Gestaltung, Dieter Rams, yeah, he designed this fantastic, you know, these objects for Braun, um, which Johnny Ives 
based Apple products on, and you see these very simple geometries and in ease of use, for example, um, and this you know simple, clean design. When we talk about uh, design for the future, um, I have to take a step back and remind everybody that the Bauhaus actually wasn't very successful. <laughs> um, it wasn't really that unique um, in terms of its design production. Uh, it was very typical of other kind of forward-looking um, design communication design uh, and architecture, you know, all on, under the umbrella of design of this 1920s um, moment. But what was unique and what still can be this model um, is uh, interdisciplinarity. Uh, and, and actually, you know, even just talking to you in these moments, I keep talking about the, the confines of discipline and how limited limiting they are to how we understand something. And that is itself a lesson that the Bauhaus could teach. And those are kind of code words in a lot of design studios now or architecture studios, collaboration, yeah, interdisciplinarity, uh, user uh, interface, getting feedback from the user to change design. You know, those are um, ideals that were explored um, in the late Bauhaus, for example, that, you know, are still very relevant. Okay. Um, do you have anything else, Jürgen? Otherwise, I think very round. <laughs> I'm almost a little bit smarter than I was before we started. Um, I mean, that's what you usually would like to to have when, when you start a conversation with somebody who knows so much. So thank you very much for being a good resource. I, I just would like to um, address one stereotypical new term and how this can be maybe uh, tied to Bauhaus, its history or its legacy, to be more exact. Is the term sustainability in your way of thinking related to what the Bauhaus people started to address? Or is this too big of a, a leap? No, I think the seeds were there, um, particularly under Hannes Meyer. Um, and because uh, Gropius focused on production and ease of production, Meyer focused on consumption um, and consumption over time. So, for example, the student works would detail the lives of, of a house or of a community or something over time, over generations, actually, with the idea that the house could be adapted to Uh, multiple generations over time. Uh, and also because of Meyer's cooperativist background, he was, you know, a Swiss cooperativist, these uh, self-sustaining uh, egalitarian groups of people who would, you know, for example, live together in, in a cooperative. Um, he applied those models to uh, his teaching, but also to these um, ideas of sustainability. And so, for example, a house would have, you know, a garden and also possibly the idea anyway of um, some kind of power. I don't, I don't know about solar power, but, um, you know, thinking about the sun and heat and things like that. So the thinking process was beginning. On the other hand, the furniture designed at the Bauhaus then was meant to be cheap and flexible. So it could be used um, kind of, it's like Ikea, right? Where you, you buy these different uh, 
you know, components to your desk, depending on what you need or your office or, or whatever. Um, but then the problem was it was, it was not sustainable. It was seen as Okay, this is so cheap that, you know, in this time of massive demographic shifts and moving for jobs and things, you could either take the furniture or just leave it, <laughs> just leave it behind. So that's not very green um, in its outlook. Um, but anyway, some of, some of the ideas, the ideas of kind of self-sufficiency and also um, actually giving the user the uh, co-authorship over time of changing their house or environment or neighborhood um, across generations as part of the initial design, I think those are elements of sustainability in thinking about this. Yeah, and those are these things that have not been very well highlighted this yeah, year. Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> so yeah. that's, maybe that's our contribution today with our podcast to remind people, well, if you think you might have heard enough about the Bauhaus, well, you know, think again, maybe not. Yeah, there's more. There's always more. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then uh, greetings to Dara Kiese and thank you so much for giving us a good uh, you know, consumable lecture on what we need to know. Thank you, Sebastian, for making this uh, happen and um, we'll um, hope that people will uh, get more you know, information and if they want to know more, of course, they can always do some more Googling. Well, maybe you, you want to mention some of the uh, articles or maybe one article that you published about what you talked about. I think there's a, there's a Bauhaus reader that came out of a conference in Kassel two years ago where you held a very comprehensive lecture about Hannes Meyer that's been published. I don't know the title. <laughs> But uh, we can add that. We did see it in a window in a bookshop here in, 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 in Frankfurt last week, so it's available. Yes, okay. Uh, Philip Ostwald, yeah, okay. So then, uh, thank you for the contributions. Thank you to everybody who was listening. And uh, we say bye-bye auf Deutsch, auf Wiederhören. Bleibt uns gewogen. Hört auch demnächst wieder rein. Wir machen munter weiter. Im Takt von einer oder zwei Wochen immer ein neuer Podcast, immer ein neues Thema. Diesmal Bauhaus, 100 Jahre. Vielen Dank. Ja, vielen Dank, Dara. Danke, tschüss.